This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Natasha Froze and I'm joined by Fraser Nelson and James Heal. In The Telegraph's paper today, Fraser Nelson, our editor, has written that it's time to stop ex-MPs shilling for foreign rulers. Fraser, this has been going on forever. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that it's happening rather intensely at the moment. The phenomenon I'm looking about is that of George Osborne. We gather he's advising the Emirates on how, and on how to buy the Spectator. The Spectator is subject to a bid by Redbird IMI, which is one of these um, sock puppet organisations from the Emirati government. And it was quite something to see um, a former Chancellor basically act on behalf of a foreign government. Now, when you look into this, you find out that they have been hoovering up what MPs they can. David Cameron was out there um, giving speeches at £115,000 a shot, about four of these speeches. He was giving um, lecturing, bizarrely, at a university in Abu Dhabi. You can bet he was paid more than the average lecturer for that. And this, I would argue, creates a conflict of interests. Because right now, most Conservative ministers will be thinking about the next election. Say it's in November, they're thinking they're probably going to lose that election. They'll be thinking of how to feather their nest, what they're going to do after ministerial office. Now, we know what David Cameron did after office. He, when he was in Prime Minister, he tried to, he and Osborne tried to set up this sort of UK-China investment. He, they would take plane loads of businessmen on them to Beijing. They would try to shape British foreign policy to be more pro-Beijing with the idea of getting more investment. Cameron tried to set up a $1 billion um, UK-China investment fund that flopped. But nonetheless, you can see the segue. Now, the problem right now is that the British government is deciding whether to let the Emirates buy the Spectator and the Telegraph. And if that decision is going to be taken or be influenced by those who basically stand to get Emirati money once they leave office, that does create a conflict of interest. Not a visible one, because they're not in receipt of money right now, but it's a prospect of where they're going to get money from later on that creates the conflict. We've seen this in the Ministry of Defence. For decades, there's been a relatively depressing revolving door, where the civil servants doing the procuring of a Secretary of State We'll know that in a few years' time they'll be able to get a pretty um, cushy job working for British Aerospace or one of the other big defence contractors. Now, steps have been taken to try to make that less likely, but it's this new phenomenon of people getting seriously rich from politics, Blair rich, Osborne rich, that is relatively new. Fraser, you often talk in the office about... um when things go wrong, it's a problem of our success. Things can be a problem of our success. This has been going on forever. Is this just not that Tony Blair is actually very successful at what he does? He's a high-profile figure and he's a former politician doing what all former politicians go on to do. Yes, you're right. Blair is doing this par excellence. The, you know, a lesser politician might be content with giving an odd speech. Um, Boris Johnson can go off to what he calls Singapore Kerching to um, get speeches over there. You know, it happens a few times. But Blair has made a business and an industry of this. He's got this Tony Blair Institute with dozens of people. I've spoken to somebody who went to see him there recently. Apparently, you have to make your way through these layers of these young, beautiful, bright young things. And then in the back room... hundred of them. <laughs> and then there's the great Blair in his sort of lair who you get introduced to like he's the Wizard of Oz. 
at the beginning of it. So Blair has been more audacious, some might say shameless, in creating an industry, first of all advising foreign governments, the Kazakhs and what have you, and then he's doing some business. In the, but we're talking like third world, that's the idea, I'm helping support developing governments. But now he's sort of ditched all that, he's now coming up with ideas for British government. He's now also bought a house the, uh, next to Chequers, he's got a stately house, he'll be um, Keir Starmer's next door neighbour if Starmer ends up in Chequers. Um, so, and I'm told that Blair sort of hangs out in there, being given the equivalent of red boxes pretending as if he's a prime minister in effect and after the next general election i think we're going to see lots of um, tony blair institute staffers or change makers as they call themselves moving into keir starmer's government so yes blair is very successful but i think it's a success that should worry us because i think that we we don't know who funds blair we know that there's quite a few um, foreign government interests we know there's lots of corporate interests we know the digital id industry was giving him money and there there he was advocating vaccine passports during the pandemic so i think this is something which we should keep our eye on because it's a new defect in our democracy I think a couple of points. Uh, first of all, I think it's Fraser's right to say the Tony Blair Institute is probably going to be very represented in terms of alumni in the next government. Uh, what I would say is that that's not too different to say, for instance, what the Liz Truss government did, which basically raided half of the Westminster think tanks in Tufton Street, etc., uh, the likes of the Institute of Economic Affairs, the likes of the Taxpayers Alliance. Um, so, Fraser, why is this so different? I mean, why can is it one rule for the left, one rule for the right? Look, you're certainly right that there is lots of who funds the IEA questions over there. And there's a great big Tufton Street comparison. This is very popular in Twitter. And poor Kate Andrews, our economics editor, worked there for a while. She still gets who funds you, Kate. And the answer to that is the Spectator Subscribers funder. She's been a spectacularly successful journalist for four years now. But nonetheless, you're right that they go around there. Now, I didn't regard and still don't regard the IEA as being influential or anything, Tanks, I'm afraid to say, as being particularly influential. In, in Westminster politics. Now and again, you might get the Centre for Social Justice, which I'm involved in, would come up with proposals for modern slavery, which Theresa May adopted, proposed the welfare reform model, which Ian Duncan Smith adopted. That was influenced, there was no doubt about it. But when you look at the um, free market think tanks, again, I'm involved in the Centre for Policy Studies, I think any advocacy for restraint on government spending or lower taxes has been a spectacular failure. Um, now the so I- the left are better at it than the right? Yes, they are. The left are far better at marching through the institutions. Right. Than, and, you know, I think it's sort of strange that I, yeah, I think IEA should publish who funds it. I think we wouldn't be particularly interested in, in, the, um, in the results. But when you look at the, the what, you know, what policy successes have the IEA managed to get through in the last few years, I don't think we can count very many of them. But I do suspect we're going to see um, Blairites, because they're more subtle Blair things. They're all, I mean, the, the right-wing ones tend to make sort of broad brush kind of, we think we should cut taxes and do this never never happens Blair is more technocratic and he wants to find ways of diverting people's pension monies into destinations of his choice or digitizing the classroom for example giving um, so little things that are relatively boring but certainly I suspect would serve the corporate interests which now bankroll him. But two points quickly um, first of all yeah the TBI is probably going to have lots of people uh, but that's also a failing of the Tory machine and I think one of the things we're going to see over the next 12 months after the election if there's a leadership contest is how the Tory machine has withered and died and basically there used to be a thing called Swinton College where in the 60s and 70s lots of 
of uh, activists were trained up, etc., and people came through that route. Um, the Tories have none of that, really, and they've kind of relied on the infrastructure of, say, the think tanks to bring in through people. But as Fraser says, I think it really speaks to the kind of lack of any training that has to be done through a private think tank like Tony Blair's one. The second point is a lot of these politicians, say George Osborne, for instance, they're, what, around the age of 50, they're still in the prime of their, their youth, as our editor is of similar age. That, yeah. <laughs> but the point is that, you know, the old days, they would have ministers who would do, go into politics and then come out in their late 60s, sort of extinct volcanoes. They go to the House of Lords. They either remain on the back benches like Callaghan did until 87, or they would, uh, you know, go off into the House of Lords and give speeches, etc. And there was that benefit, and it was saved within Parliament. Nowadays, I think people like uh, George Osborne probably have a lot of active energy and lots of uh, idle time, so why not fill it with 13 different jobs? Well, that's a decent challenge, James. I mean, I, I, am I basically talking here not really about a new direction in politics, but simply about the fact that ex-Prime Ministers are getting younger, ex-Chancellors so are many getting younger. <laughs> yeah, I mean, George Osborne celebrated his 40th birthday, I think, in um, the Dorneywood when he was Chancellor. But what we're seeing now is, I think, a bit more brazenness in these former politicians, not really applying their skills, but selling their connections. Um, George Osborne, I think, is taking his 13th job this week. He's advising some cryptocurrency outfit. And he's basically selling his connections. Now, he's a very well-connected man. But um, but what I can't quite work out is why David Cameron would be just doing it so badly. I mean, he was himself in 2010 argued that lobbying would be the next big scandal. He was right about that, as he went on to demonstrate when he was trying to advise this spiff called Lex Greensill, who had this slightly dodgy banking company which went bust. And, of course, had it floated, then Cameron would have got millions of pounds. I think I read a report saying he anyway learned £10 million from that. And it's just unbecoming to see a prime minister reduced to a lobbyist and I actually think David Cameron achieved many great things in office. I think the school reform was incredible, as welfare reform was incredible. He won a general election majority in 2015. You would think he would be able to do things with his afterlife that would still earn a decent living, but just not a multi-multi-million pound living. You, you talk about a Blair-Osborne Act. You don't seriously think this should be a, a law, do you? I do. I think there should be laws or regulations, whatever is necessary. But I think my idea... So as in there should be legislation to say once you become a former political figure, you cannot take up these jobs in other countries. You cannot act for foreign governments, yes. The editor of The Spectator magazine thought you'd be more of a libertarian. Well, I'm afraid now that with new challenges, you need to have new responses. And we do have a challenge of um, these autocracies with so much money and they're trying to influence a public debate. That's why they're paying so much money for The Spectator and The Telegraph, because they want these publications to be sort of agencies of their influence. Now, this this is something we need to protect ourselves against. And I don't think there are many jobs which stipulate what you can't do after you leave. And I don't see why, if you're a minister, you shouldn't have given undertaking that you will never work for a foreign government. We've seen the Russians try to recruit Gerhard Schroeder successfully at Gazprom. Um, This is not, you know, it is a terrible look for a democracy. I don't think it's too much to ask if you're granted the huge privilege of being able to serve your country in a ministerial post. You then promise not to serve another country, especially if they're um, just trying to make a, a quick buck. So is it no countries that they can serve in, in your legal framework? Yes, that's what I propose. They, they're not even the Swedish, not, not even benign countries. And there's lots of other ways of making a living. Now, I, the, the, of course, we know that there was lots of politicians who, if it wasn't for politics, they wouldn't really have much of a career. 
I mean, take Chris Skidmore, for example. Now, he's a history graduate. He's a sort of a political researcher. He got a, a Tory seat. And after a two-month stint covering as an energy minister and doing a net zero review, he's now off to become a professor at Bath University in basically specialising in green issues. He's got no and professional qualifications at all in this. And now he is cutting and running. He's foisting a by-election on his constituents. We're going to have it later this month because he couldn't bring himself to serve his constituents until the end of a time allowed. I think this is such an, an abrogation of public responsibility that there should be regulations prohibiting it. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, James. And thanks for listening.